We are in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 as we do our study this morning. You're turning there and we're talking about a criminal this morning from Acts chapter 7. But I want to start off with this. Some of the dumbest criminal stories that have just come across the news. There's this guy who went into a store. He wanted to rob the store and he used as a weapon a baseball bat. Came in, smashed the counter and told the owner, he said, you know, give me all the money. He picked the wrong store. He went to discount gun sales. So the owner was armed and carry, you know, carrying, and so he just pulled out his gun, aimed it at the guy. I mean, you ever play rock, paper, scissors? Bat versus pistol. Who wins? So he ended up getting arrested. Here's a guy who was in Britain. He wanted to use his bank card in order to flip the lock so he could go in and steal. He heard some noise on the inside. He ran away, but he broke his card off. And when they pulled out, the card had his name, his bank number, everything on it. Here's one. Just the title gives it away, right? Fugitive busted for applying to a job at the sheriff's office. It's who would go and apply to the police when there's a want out for you? Here's another one. I couldn't figure this one out. Stealing somebody's porch. How do you steal somebody's porch? Then I saw a picture of the porch. I guess you can do it if if you really want to. Here's one. Guy goes into a bank. He writes on a note, says, give me all your money. She gives the money, walks around, she turns it over. He wrote the note on the back of his pay stub. So it had all of his name, address, things like that. This is an individual who wanted to rob a car, put his hand in, grabbed the bag off the front seat of the car. Didn't know that the guy who owned the car had just gotten a red-bellied black snake, captured from a house, and put it in that bag. Surprise when you open up that bag. Here's one for you. Thieves use permanent markers to disguise their real identities. What we're talking about this morning is somebody who is not a dumb criminal. Actually, he's just the opposite. His name is Stephen. The story is found in Acts chapter 7. It continues a story that started in Acts chapter 6 already where the story is about Stephen who was chosen as a deacon by the church, one of the first officers. He starts going about the duties of the deacon, but then he also goes about to synagogues, probably synagogues we said last week that he used to be a member of, some of the Hellenistic synagogues, and he's preaching Christ. He gets arrested. He gets taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court of 70 different men who would try such cases. Remember, this is the same court that just a few weeks before has illegally condemned Jesus. They held trials that night. They weren't supposed to. They did different things illegally against Jesus. Now they're going to hold a trial against Stephen who, this, this isn't really a trial. This is going to be more of a lynch mob. And so they're trying him for speaking about Jesus. They have already arrested the apostles twice. They have beaten the apostles on one occasion and told them it is illegal now to speak for Jesus or of Jesus. And so they made this new law. Well, Stephen violated that law by going about and doing what Jesus said, proclaiming his name, telling all people, so Stephen gets arrested. He's hauled before this group, and he's falsely accused of several things. We have to catch this. This is critical to uh, chapter 7. Go in chapter 6 and hear what they say he is guilty of, starting with verse 11 of chapter 6. It says, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. 
Jump down now to about verse 13. They set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And he talks about Jesus of Nazareth destroying this place. And he shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Those four accusations are really, really important to understanding what Stephen responds in chapter 7. And so they're accusing him of basically blasphemy, I should say, five different uh, areas he's charged with against God, Moses, the temple, the law that Moses gave, and against Judaism. He wants to change Judaism. And so they accuse him of this, and so he gets brought in before the court, and the first thing you read in chapter 7, verse 1, is the leaders say, is this true? Did you really do these things? And so what happens is Stephen basically speaks for most of all of chapter 7. He is giving his defense. He is talking to the high court. And if you read in right at the beginning, men, brethren, fathers, he's very respectful. He is going to be very careful how he handles this. It is the longest recorded, if we can call it a sermon, it's the longest one in the book of Acts. And so there he's giving his, his account, his defense, his apologia. He's defending his faith in the faith of Christianity. Some of you are going to read this text and you're going to say all it is is a recitation of history. So much more. It is so filled with truth. It is a refutation of the accusations made against him. And so he's giving a defense of Christianity, of Christ. It is profound the way he does this. In fact... I dare say, maybe this is just me, but I think most of us, when we read this, it doesn't really tickle us. It doesn't catch our attention. We're looking for Stephen to say, well, reason number one, reason number two, reason three. Because we think Aristotelian when we think about giving an argument. We think with giving the the whys and putting them in order. We think outline. That's the way the Western mind is. In that Eastern mind where the group he's dealing with, they don't do that. This is extremely appropriate the way he did it for a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience was, uh, for the most part, they were handing down all kinds of information. They had it written in Old Testament, but most of it was given orally. And so as they shared it with their families, they would rehearse the stories. They would use stories to teach. They would use stories in order to get a point across. Probably the greatest storyteller is... Jesus Christ. Did he ever use stories to make a point? All the time. That's a Jewish mindset. So what what, uh, Stephen's going to do is he's going to respond with story to just point out his, his refutation by reminding them this happened, this happened, this happened. He is doing it with Jewish stories, which that's very fitting, And he's telling them about their own national history, which they know, but he's highlighting certain points of their history that will defend his beliefs. And so it's really interesting if you look at it from that point of view, and it's filled with just basic Jewish heroes. So they would would listen to him. He's going to come across thinking, talking like them. He's filling this with Bible stories and quotes. And as he's going through and giving his defense... There's going to be some people that, and I don't want to spend time on this, but there's a few of you, you're going to discuss this at work, and you're going to have some people say, yeah, but I heard that this story is filled with inaccuracies. You can, somebody could twist it to say there's, there's inaccuracies, but I think it's just somebody speaking the way we speak, the way it's recorded. For instance, 
they will point out and they'll say that Stephen talks about they were in Egypt 400 years. But Exodus says they were there 430 years. Therefore, Stephen's mistaken. He's inaccurate. How old is the United States? Two, three hundred years old? Yes or no? Yes. But it is actually how many years? Yeah, okay. So it's in between there. Are we okay to say the United States is almost 250 years old? And we would say that. We would accept that. That's what Stephen's doing. That's all he's doing. He's just giving general ideas. Some will say, and sometimes it says 70 souls went down into Egypt when the Hebrews went down. Others will say 75. It depends if you include uh, Joseph's household, his sons and those who were in his household. So it's not a contradiction. It's just a matter of what the numbers were based. And I should tell you that according to the Septuagint, the Septuagint had recorded all the way in the Old Testament 75. And the Septuagint was the one that, the Bible that Stephen was using that was based and written by Hellenistic Jews. When Abraham's, uh, it speaks of Abraham and uh, his grandson, uh, I'm sorry, when it speaks of Abraham leaving Mesopotamia, going to Haran, and then coming to the Promised Land, we read in the Old Testament that God spoke to him at Haran. And this passage says God spoke to him at Mesopotamia. So he came out of Mesopotamia, then he went to Haran, and then he went into the Promised Land. An obvious, not a contradiction, but obviously, God could have spoken to him in Mesopotamia, and then also in Haran, and then he moved on. It's not a contradiction. It's just don't get caught up with these details so much so, because we think details... We think specifics when we tell a story. We have to get the time and the date and everything right. He's just giving a story, and it's not the point of the details. It's the point of the story is what's emphasized in that Eastern mind. And he talks about Abraham buying a burial plot at one place, it says, at Shechem. And then later on, it says Abraham bought the field of Machpelah. And it was that, that Jacob bought the field at Shechem. Who was it? May I suggest something that's not far-fetched? Somebody grows up here, and somebody is starting to age here. So they buy a burial plot here, and then they move somewhere, and their family moves them down out of state where their family is. Is it possible that somebody might have a burial plot here, but then they buy another burial plot elsewhere? Is that remotely possible? Yeah, okay. So is it possible that Abraham, who always moved around, he may have bought more than one burial plot? Because was Abraham a young man? In those, you know, going in his... When he had a child, was he a young man? No. So there's no problem here that he may have bought one and then moved over to McPeela area, and there he bought one. And later on, his grandson, great-grandson comes along, and he repays for the same plot because now it's a couple generations later. So Stephen's telling this story, and he's not giving, you know, exact details that the Old Testament specifically would have, but they're not contradictory. Stephen is preaching, and as he preaches, all of a sudden what happens, he tells all of this, and go down to the end of it, it says in verse 54, when they, that's the Sanhedrin, heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, they are sitting like some people do. They sit there, and they're grinding their teeth in anger. They can't stand what he's telling them, what he's saying to them. And he goes on and talks about him. But look down at verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They come and they grab him. They cast him outside the city. So you visualize the picture. They're hauling him through the streets. 
until they get to the outside of the city. And then when they get them outside the city, what do they do to them? They stone them. So he never gets to finish his sermon. We get the end of what he's able to say. But he says enough. And, but these people respond by attacking him. Now, what I want to do is look in, the, in between where he starts speaking and then where they get so mad. And if you want to break it down, there's different ways because we're so outline-oriented here in our Western mind. You can do it this way. You can break it down by characters. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a way to look at it that I think makes the most sense to me after going over it multiple, multiple times in years and studying it. I think I would divide it in two different sections. The one section would be basically his recounting of their ancestor's spiritual journey. And he's going to make parallels to what is happening now with what's happened in the history. That's how he's going to defend Christianity. And then at the very end, he doesn't get to complete it, but he all of a sudden he rebukes them. He brings it and says, here's how it applies to you. And that's then the very last few words of it. So taking and going with this, this outline... He's being accused, remember, he's being accused of several things. He's anti-God, anti-Moses, anti-law, anti-Judaism, anti-temple. And from a Jewish point of view, that temple is everything. Well, taking that and looking at just segments of the, of the story, and I'm going to highlight where he goes with the story and not read it in its entirety. They accuse him of being anti-God and anti-temple. He is neither. Notice how he just starts at the very beginning where he just makes these comments. At the very first um, opening of his comments, he says, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken unto the God of glory that only shows up one other time in Psalm 92 that title, of God of glory. And he says, hey, I want to tell you a story about God who I believe in, the God of all glory. And then what he does is he starts talking about this idea that God never limited himself to one building. The Jews think this. The Jews have their different synagogues, but the temple is the place, especially the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin is filled with the the Sadducees who control the temple. And they're all about the temple. Can't desecrate the temple. The temple is everything. When you pray, you got to face towards the temple, that whole focus of the Jews. And he's going to go through a story and say, God never limited himself to a building, to one city in the Old Testament, one building. He goes through and he says, and if you look at the passage, and I'll just put it up here for your sake, he says, God appeared in Mesopotamia, outside of the promised land, and spoke to our grandpa our great-great-grandfather, Abraham. God spoke to him and led him to Haran. That's still outside the promised land. And then as he goes through the story, he says, and God even directed our people to go down into Egypt when they were 75 people strong. And they lived down there for 400 years. And God moved them to the land that we think is cursed, but God was with them in Egypt. In fact, while they were in Egypt, did God forget about them? What did God do for him in Egypt? Okay, did God send him a deliverer? What did that deliverer do? We call them the ten miracles or plagues. Was God's hand working in Egypt through those miracles? So is God limited to Israel's land? No. That's his point. He says that God directed him. God even saved them. He sent a messenger. And then when God was dealing with Moses, he met him in, you know, do you remember the burning bush story? It's in the wilderness. That's not in Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not in Israel. That's not the temple. It was a bush on a mountain. 
And then God brings the people back, and then he brings them to Sinai where he meets with them. But then even when Solomon is building this temple that was beautiful and glorious, do you remember what Solomon said? He's telling the story. He's rehearsing the story. And he brings them to the point where Solomon in the temple, down in verse 47, and he says, don't you remember? He says, Solomon built God a house. Okay, he says, how be it, look at, look at the next verse, verse 48. How be it the Most High dwells, what's your Bible read? Not in temples made with hands. And then he goes on, he quotes, he says, heaven is the, is the uh, throne of God. Earth is the footstool. What house will you build me that, that I may rest? I, I don't need a house to, to take a nap. He says, has not my hand made how many things? All things. See his point? His point is you guys are focused on a building and anybody who says anything about this building is damned and doomed. But I want to tell you, you go through your own history, God wasn't stuck on a building. God didn't say there's only one sacred place that we can ever communicate with him. By the way, is this true today? Are there churches today that think a building is essential to talk to God? Okay, a building is essential to get forgiveness. Yes? Okay, there's groups that still do this. And he is saying it's not true. Christianity has the concept that we can worship God anywhere where we gather. This would really through one of my aunts. They, I mean, we're sharing the gospel with my family with those first few months that we got saved. And I'm talking to my aunt. I'm pumping gas in her car. And she is saying, you know that your parents are crazy. You should, if you need to leave home, come and live with me. And I'll keep you sound within the faith of the community church. And I was like, no, no. What, what, we're, what we're saying is really true. And she says, yeah, but you're saying we don't have to go to the church to say mass. I said, that's true, we don't. We don't have to go to one little place. Jesus isn't in a little box stuck at the front of the building. And when you walk in, you've got to be quiet lest you wake Jesus up. You know, and so all that ritual. And she says, okay, so you're telling me we could go out in that field and we could pray together to God. Yeah. Yeah, and she got mad, slammed the car, squealed. I got the hose out, the gas hose out quick enough. But there's people who think that. Now, they're accusing him of being anti-Jewish, wanting to change the customs. Do you remember we read that? Do people get upset with change? Okay. And so here's what's happening. He is responding and saying, hey, listen, our entire history, God was changing. You're upset that we're talking about Jesus doing things different than what you say. But God was always about changing things. Watch how he goes. God changed Abraham from this land to another land. He tells the story. God changed the Hebrews from this land to another land. God changed their status from free people to slaves. And was God in it? You're not sure. Can God put people in bad situations to work with them? The answer is yes. He says Moses had drastic change. And, he, and if you read the section on Moses, he divides it into three different 40-year periods. The first 40 years, what was Moses doing? You don't remember? He is, not, not first 40 years. He's raised in the Egyptian palace and enjoying all the luxuries. The next 40 years. Now he's out in the wilderness as a shepherd. Then the last 40 years, he leads Israel for the next 40 years through the wilderness. 
So, by the way, put the math together. He was 80 years old when God called him to ministry. And he led those people. It was amazing. But his life was filled with change. As well, the God changed, and he makes this comment in these verses. He says, hey, listen, just think about our temple, our building. He makes this comment. Go down to verse 44. He says, our fathers had a tabernacle in the witness of witness in the wilderness. Do you remember that? That was the portable tabernacle. Okay. Who was the one who designed it? Oh, yeah. Look what it says. He said, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as God had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the blueprint that God gave to Moses. So God designs the tabernacle. Was it to be permanent? No. No. All of a sudden, later on, later on what does God have David put things aside for in Solomon build? A house, the temple, okay, that God isn't limited to, but a place where they could come and they could talk with him if they want. At other times of the year, they can talk to him anywhere. And so there was a change that took place. Even in the tabernacle slash temple system, the story proves it. The story proves that God isn't against change. So we're telling you something that by, based on the Old Testament that Jesus is saying, and you're saying, nope, this is the way we've done it all these years. We don't want change. May I ask, does this happen in churches today? This is the way we always did it. We can't change. This is, you know, you're telling me to consider doing something. My granddad, you know, He's buried out there. My dad is buried out there. And I'm going to get, fine, get buried wherever. But be changed by Jesus Christ. And so he's making this defense where they're accusing him of being anti-Moses. Now remember, how do the Jews typically think of Moses? Good guy, bad guy? Okay, is he one of the greatest heroes of their time? Yeah, he was the father of their nation. You know, in that sense, even though Abraham was the physical father of the Hebrew race, Moses was the guy that helped to lead them to form into a nation, get them out of the, the great, get them through the greatest miracle of the Old Testament, the, the Red Sea crossing. And in his storytelling, he's saying, I am not anti-Moses. I'm not. I'm not against Moses. If you go through, he speaks more about Moses in a positive way than any other character. In fact, while he's standing there telling about Moses over and over and over again, like this section of this of a sermon that just keeps going, and he's talking about Moses this, Moses this, Moses this, Moses this, what's his face doing? His face is glowing. It's shining. Whose face glowed before? The only other character. So it's Moses. So they stand there and they're seeing a visible repeat of, maybe not quite the same, but to the same degree, they're seeing a repeat of somebody's face shining, speaking truth, and this guy's talking about Moses. How can you say you're anti-Moses? You kind of look like him right now. You're talking about him right now, and then you quote him. Go down to verse 37. Look how he says it as he's telling the story. This is that Moses... Just to make sure, guys, that you don't understand. Moses, this hero that I've been telling you about, he said to your children, uh, to the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up amongst you. Like unto me, you shall hear him. 
This he said to that group that was in the wilderness. God is going to send a special prophet. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy 18. Who's he talking about? A great, greater than Moses that would come. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Moses did lots of miracles. Do this, does this, Sanhedrin know Jesus did even more? Yes or no? They sure do. They sure do. Have they seen him in action? They, they crucified him just weeks ago. Why did they do that? They hated what he was doing and saying. And so he's reminding them, he's saying, hey, listen, this is, I, I'm not against Jesus. I, you know, I'm not against Moses. If anybody here in this room, now he's turning the tables on them. This is how clever he is. He's standing here giving his defense and he's saying, I'm not against Moses. I agree with Moses. I support what Moses did. If anybody in this room doesn't like Moses, it's you. It's you guys. You're anti-Moses. Now the, the whole thing is switching. As he goes into another section that he says, and here's, here's what they're saying. They said they've already made this comment. He's changing things. He's against things. You know, and he's basically talking to a group of people that would do this. For years, we are the group that is held to the truth. For years, our group has been following God. By the way, do churches ever do this today? Do denominations ever cling to this? That we are the, you know, we are the ones who are holding and doing right. And we are godly. Do, do preachers ever do this? We keep the whole counsel of God. We are holy people. Churches ever claim this? Okay. They are doing that. They're saying this. And what does he do? Turns the table through storytelling. He says, you know, we're, we're saying our ancestry is what's going to get us to heaven. Our ancestors didn't follow God's word. And he tells them time and again as he's going through. He's, he, go down to verse 38. Just see where he said. This he, verse 38 that was in the church in the wilderness, the gathering of the group, the angel which spake unto him at Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the living oracles, they got the, the entire law, to, and so he's talking about, you guys, our ancestors got the law directly by God through angels to whom our fathers would what? What's he saying in verse 39? Our fathers just got the Ten Commandments plus, and what did they do? They obeyed it? What's your Bible read? They would not obey it. Look at what he says. Our Father, it's fresh in their mind. They're standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai. What's happening on the mount? They were there for 40 days. What's going on on top of the mountain where Moses had gone and now he's come back down? What's, what's, what are they seeing? Lightning, thunder, smoke. The earth is quaking. There's trumpets blaring. Do you remember this? That the people were so afraid. And Moses said, well, you should be. God's up there. He's meeting with me. He's giving me the Ten Commandments. And don't you dare touch this mountain. Okay? I'll, I'll talk to God. I'll come back and I'll give you his commands. They've been seeing it for 40 days. And after 40 days, they got used to it. They were no longer in, enamored by it. So he gives them the commandments. And, and by the way, he's gonna, he goes up three different times. So he comes down, they say, yes, we're going to agree, goes back up, and during the extended one of those trips up is what happens. It says, oh, 
it says, to whom our fathers would not obey, but they thrust him from them, and in their hearts they turn back to who? To Egypt, saying unto Aaron, make us a God to go before us, for as for this Moses, which brought, we don't know where, what's happened to him. So they make a golden calf in those days and offer sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works. How long did it take him to blow it? Days? Just days while all this activity is going on? And, and the Jewish leaders are saying, but our gods, our family is a perfect family. And he's saying, no, we weren't. By the way, if you notice, he keeps on using our, 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 our through this section. He is saying, our ancestors, they wouldn't obey as we already read. He says, okay, so God has them build a tabernacle. And so when they build this tabernacle, what do they do? Well, God's living them. God's got the, um, the pillar of fire at night. Do you remember any of this? And in the daytime it's a, okay, it's a cloud. They have a visible witness of God going with them for how many years? These 40 years. God's there. They look out their window. I'm sorry. They can open up the flap of the tent and they can see there's a visible representation of God, which should have kept them on the straight and narrow. Right? And then they go into their land and they have this tabernacle, but what do they do? It says, okay, we go a little bit further. You took, verse 43, you took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephim, figures which you made to worship them. They turned to idolatry. They turned to idols. After all that God had done for them, it didn't take them long. He says, generation after generation after generation, our fathers proved themselves to be sinners. None of our family is perfect. Not all of us have sinned. He says, they didn't keep the law that was given to them. He's, and then, then at the very end, he makes this point as he's talking to them. He says, you know, the, the, the receive the law by the disposition and you're not even keeping it. We'll, we'll get to back to that in a moment, okay? The point he is making, nobody is perfect. Not even you guys who are sitting there judging me. We are all sinners. No family is perfect. And if you're, if you're saying to yourself, I'm going to get to heaven because of my mom and dad. What has Stephen just said about your mom and dad? You're, they're sinners just like the rest of us. They need a savior. They all need a savior. There's not a single generation that doesn't need a savior. No, none of us are perfect. None of our parents were perfect. None of our grandparents were perfect. We already know our kids aren't. But we all those others in the past. And so he's driving this home is heritage doesn't get us to heaven. Just because we're Jewish doesn't mean you go to heaven. Let's bring it to modern day. Just because you go to a Baptist church gets you. Are you kidding me? Are Baptist sinners? Amen. Okay. Just because you go to a Roman Catholic church, just because you go to a Methodist church, just because you, you think we have a leader in the, at the beginning, you know, living in a certain city that you say is sinless, he's saying it doesn't work. It doesn't hold true. For any nation, any group of people, everybody needs a Savior. Okay, that, that's his defense of Christianity. They say, hey, listen, you're anti-God, anti-Moses, anti-law. He's going to point out something that is incredible in this text. He says, you guys are just doing what your dads did. Your dads rejected the deliverer whenever God sent them. He, he starts with a story, one of his first stories. What do you know about Joseph? 
young guy, did God speak to Joseph as a teenager? Yes, he gave him dreams. Okay? Joseph, did he share those dreams with his family? What did they do? Oh, Joseph, we're so glad that you told us about God. Okay, so his families, he made, made, look at the passage where he goes, moved with jealousy, they sell him into slavery. They get rid of him. Wait a minute, he's God's messenger. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. And he's there afflicted in, in, the, uh, in Egypt for those uh, years that go by. But then God raises him up. Remember the story? He's raised second to Pharaoh. Why did God raise him up? To deliver people from the famine. And so he's, he's assigned this point of deliverance. And then his brothers come down. You remember the whole story. They come down. They don't even recognize him. And he kind of hides himself. And then they, they make a second trip. And then he's revealed. Get the point of what he's getting at. His point is they rejected the deliverer first of all. But when he came a second time, they had to deal with him. And then they recognized him. And in grace, what, do they, what does he do? He forgives them. He embraces them. And as such, they're able to live in the land and he delivers them. Do you see any parallels to Jesus? Was Jesus rejected? Was he the deliverer? Will people have to deal with him the second time? Then he tells another story about another deliverer. Moses, who was exceedingly fair as an infant. In the meantime, what were the Jews experiencing? Okay, they're, 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 in, they're in bondage. They're slaves for these years. They're being persecuted. They're being beaten. Does Moses try to deliver them? Yes. Read the story. It says that Moses goes out one day. He's Egyptian royalty. He goes out and he sees that one of the Hebrews is being beaten by one of the Egyptians. And so he goes over there, and it even, he visited his brethren, supposing they would have understood how God would deliver by his hand. So the way that he thought he would introduce himself is he takes out the Egyptian. Did the Hebrews accept him? No, because the next day he comes, and now the two guys are fighting. And he says to them, how is it that you are fighting amongst yourselves? And they said, oh, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And, jo and Moses does what? He flees for the wilderness. He's rejected the first time. In fact, when he comes back, even after he comes back right away, they're still hesitant about him. But eventually he leads them through the, into the wilderness. And then in the wilderness, what do they do with him? After he's been leading him, there's a couple times where they want to stone him and get rid of him. But he's God's He's God's appointed deliverer. He's the prophet that they know. But they want to get rid of him. Do you see any parallels to Jesus? Do you see what he's saying to you? Are none, Some of you won't like this. When somebody comes up and says, Oh, you're just like your mother. Well, I guess it depends on who's saying that. Okay, You're just like your dad. That's what he's doing. He's saying, You guys are just like... And so he makes all these different things. And he even makes this comment. He says, you've rejected the prophets. You've done that over the years. You killed a lot of the prophets. And he tells stories. 
And story after story, his whole point is leading him to this final spot where he just says, okay, let me bring it all together, that all of a sudden he says this. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you do always, what? Resist the Holy Ghost. Just like who? Just like your dads did. Just like your ancestors did. That's his point. His point is, as he's going through, he says, you're hard-hearted. He says, you guys repeatedly are resisting the Holy Spirit. And by the way, did they have witness of the Holy Spirit? Did, was there confirmation that Jesus was doing miracles? Did they hear of the miracles being done by the apostles? Did they hear them use scripture that, that supported what they were doing? Yes, 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 yes. But why weren't they listening? Hard-hearted. Stiff-necked. And he makes it so clear. He says, even. He says, which of the prophets didn't your fathers persecute? And he says, you slayed them. The ones who showed you before about the coming of the just or the righteous one. Of whom... You not only rejected, but what does he point out to them? Of whom you have been now, what words does he give to them? Betrayers and murderers. You killed the ultimate deliverer. You slew him. You killed him. He's very compassionate, but he's very pointed. And he's saying to them, you guys are sinners. You needed Christ and you rejected him. Shame on you. And what was their response? Well, we read it. They get really ticked. Instead of repenting and saying, you're right. This, that's me. You're right. Instead, they get mad at him. Instead, what they do is they take him out, they stone him. And then we read in chapter 8, verse 1, they start persecution of all the other Christians as well. And it gets worse for the believers. They absolutely rejected his witness about Jesus Christ. It's a sad story, but what about you? What about you? How do you respond when somebody tells you the truth from scriptures? When somebody says to you, you are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that includes you. When you are told that your sin has separated you from God. And that as a sinner separated from God, the wages of sin is death. And as a result, if you got what you deserved, you would end up in hell. And you cannot rely on your good works. You cannot rely on your church. You cannot rely upon your past, your parents, your ancestry. You cannot rely upon your national identity. You cannot rely upon coming to a building. You can't rely on anything to cover your sins. You need a Savior, a sinless Savior, who came down, who is the only one that can get you into heaven. There is salvation by no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. How do you respond? Do you repent when you hear this? Do you rile inside and say, how dare you pick on my family? How dare you attack another church or denomination? How dare you say that I'm a sinner? 
How do you respond? Some of us can say, in the past, that's the way I did. I got angry. I got mad. Some of you have relatives that do this. Don't be surprised this happened to Stephen. It happened to Jesus. Some people get mad. Some people will easily try to excuse it by saying, well, yeah, sitting in the pew and they look over and they see so-and-so that they know from work. Well, that person isn't perfect. I got news for you. None of us are perfect. None of us in this room are perfect. We are all sinners saved by grace. And so some people might sit here or might be listening and they're going to hang on to their old religion. Even though they know that it, it can't save them, but it's just, it's tradition. It's family. Or some people, even believers, sit when they hear the word of God and they shovel it to somebody else in the pew. They think about so-and-so and so-and-so. I hope they're listening. I hope that they're getting something out of it. Or do you, do you come, even as a believer, do you come, do your routine and leave and forget and neglect whatever we say. Just walk out. Turn it off. Because you're okay in your eyes. What about in God's eyes? What about what God says? But you just walk away without any intent of changing. How do you respond to the word of God? Can I ask another question that goes along with this? Do you defend Christianity? Do you stand up for Christ when people attack him and accuse him? I'm not saying get up on the workbench and start preaching and you know, tear down the name of Christ by, a, by not working and doing the right thing. But when people criticize Christ, when family gives you a hard time, do you defend your faith? Do you defend to say, the Bible is true, I believe the Bible is true. I believe God is the creator of all things. I believe Jesus is the sinless son of God. We are supposed to be able to do this. It has said in Peter's writing, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an apologia. The answer is a defense. That's the word. To defend your faith. To defend why you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Why you believe he is the sinless son of God. Do you do that? Or maybe I should ask this question. Maybe it's more pointed. Are you able to? Are you able to defend the faith? To defend the word of God? And if you can't, why don't you come to more services and learn more of the Bible? Why don't you come to Sunday school? Why don't you come to some of the other Bible studies where we go more in depth? Are you content in not standing up for Christ? Are you content with just remaining somewhat Bible ignorant? That's not God's intent for you. That's not God's plan for you. God's plan is that we carry out the word of God, we declare it, and when people say, why do you believe, we are able to answer it. The way we become able to answer is we learn it. We study it together. We get out of this, I only need to go to church the minimum amount of times in a week just to get by. But to be an effective gospel witness, we all need more teaching, more learning. We need it. To know why we believe what we believe. May I ask this most pointed question? Will you stand up for Christ this week? 
Will you declare that I'm a Christian by giving out a gospel tract? By inviting somebody to a reenactment where they can hear the word of God? By living godly when other people around you might be using its name in vain? You say, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to be different. I'm going to stand for Christ. I'm going to defend the name of Jesus instead of abusing it. I'm going to live a pure life. Now, I may be asking some people here, and that's, that's probably a dilemma, to say, are you willing to stand up for Christ? And yet you're not even willing to go and publicly get baptized before Christians and declare your faith. Why not? It's commanded in the New Testament. Is Christ that insignificant? That he doesn't even deserve your obedience in something so simple as getting baptized after you've been a believer? There are peoples who need to stop and think that standing for Christ isn't always going to be easy, but we're supposed to do it. There's a story that comes out of history that talks about what happened there in India in a a region called Assam. This is back now uh, a century or more ago. There was a revival that took place in Wales. And when the revival took place, there was a group of young people that said, we want to share the gospel. And we're going to go to different areas. So a group of them went to India. India was not open to the gospel. And as they were going and they were sharing the gospel, there was a group of missionaries that went into this one area. Let me, let me share by reading it to you. It says, they came, a group of missionaries came from the American Baptist Mission, spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed in this region. One missionary couple succeeded in converting a man by the name of Noxing, his wife and two children. This man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began. They began to question their own background and start to accept Christianity. Angry, the village chief summoned all the villagers together. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Emboldened by the Holy Spirit, the father said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered that the archers shoot the two children. As the boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief turned and said again, Will you deny your faith? You have just lost both your children. Will you lose your wife too? Though none goes with me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. The chief turned again and said, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said these words, The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle suddenly took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was so moved by the faith of the man that he out loud said, Why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land on another continent 2,000 years ago? There must be something, some remarkable power behind this man's, this man's faith and his family. I want that faith too. And in a spontaneous confession outwardly, he said out loud, I too now will take Jesus as my Savior. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of the chief, the whole village 
turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Would you, would you be one who would follow Jesus? I have decided to follow Jesus.